fairy tales, children's stories about magical and imaginary beings and lands, often the first lens we give young minds to view the world they live in. Many assume these are fictional stories to be taken lightly, but what if there is more to them? This is a podcast where we'll tell you some myths and tales that you thought you knew, and we'll show you how they are connected to real-life crimes today. This is Scary Tales, where the stories of your childhood meet real-life horror. We'll discuss how the light and happy tales of youth actually have a darker history to them. We'll also discuss true crime today and some of the eerie connections they have to the myths and legends of yesterday. Tune in for a new tale every other Tuesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you stream your podcast. I got a little Debbie in my belly. <laughs> we we had to do the snack break first. Oh, are you rolling? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want me to cut that or not? No, it's just what it is. What it is. We did the snack break beforehand. We've we just too, we just exposed our exposed ourselves. We get too excited about what the snack break is, and and so we have to record that first. And so, now but we we're still all... put it in the middle for you guys because mm-hmm. y'all need a little a little break in between. Yeah, but it's good. It is so good. You just buckle mm, up. Mm, mm, mm. You're welcome for all the beautiful snack recommendations because we stay this, on top. This is a good one this it week. Is. We're not going to say anything else about it though. Nope. You got to wait till at least halfway through the show. Mm-hmm. But today, next week is Valentine's Day. It is. We did not try Valentine's candy for our snack break, so we we, we didn't we didn't do all that. No, we did something. We way did something better. way better. Yeah. So Valentine's Day is next week. So we thought we would talk about Valentine's Day. Yes. We already talked about Cupid. Right, which is similar but different. I think we touched Cupid's on a little one, bit of this in the y- Cupid episode, but this is yeah. in detail. Well, and Cupid's just one part of it. So mm-hmm. some of this may be familiar if you've listened to our Cupid episode, but you're you're going to get some new stuff as well. Some new stuff. Not to mention a new a new true crime. There you go. But a little more of the history of Valentine's Day and not just Cupid himself. So every week at work, not every, well, pretty much every week we have these parties and there's like, Hey Judith, if you're listening, she does listen. She makes these very elaborate cakes. She can make anything you want. She can make a witch's cauldron. She can make a golden retriever holding an American flag, anything you want. That's just what comes to mind. I love that. And so she's making one for Valentine's day and she was asking opinions on it. And I was like, it should be bloody and there should be a battlefield and there should be cupid and he's got arrow through his heart and they were all like no valentine's is about i was like you don't know i was about to say this is what happens when you when you listen to scary tales is whatever whatever sweet image you had of whatever the story is it's ruined Mm -hmm. because that is more on on brand than that's more factual than than everything else and a cute little guy with a with a bow and arrow Mm -hmm. so let's let's dive in let's tell you about valentine's day february 14th Mm -hmm. It's a time for people to celebrate love and romance and make these beautiful, cute cakes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You might shower your significant other with flowers or gifts or candy or chocolate, all in the name of St. Valentine. Mm -hmm. Sounds nice. Sounds lovely. Uh, But as we do at Scary Tales, the origin of Valentine's Day is a much darker one. Rather, it's rather mysterious. Um, no one can really pinpoint exactly where it started. We've talked about that on our stories as mm-hmm. well. But a good place to start is to check in with the ancient Roman Romans. They're right, Always do. Got them on speed dial. They're right there by the ancient Greeks. Uh-huh. So we start there. In ancient Rome, from February 13th to February 15th, the Romans celebrated a festival of Lupercalia. Uh, so it's a festival to purify the city and promote health and fertility. Lupercalia was known as um, Dies Febro- Febratus mm-hmm. after the 
purification instrument called Februa, which also is a month that sounds like the month of February. Right. That's where they get it from. Yeah. Our month of February is named after something, a purification what, instrument. D- d- what is name? A puri- what, what is a purification? I don't know. Define d- that. I don't know, but just knowing us, it a just purification sounds... purification instrument? Just, I don't want to think about it too hard. Yeah. We, we, we're not going to talk about it. I imagine more. it's sharp and pointy. Yeah. Just the rest of this, that lends well to mm-hmm. what's about to happen. Uh, so this is the the basis of the month name, Februarius, mm-hmm. purification instrument. This festival started with a sacrifice. So the priest of the god Lupercus, called the Luper the Luperci or Luperci, would strip down butt naked in preparation to go and slaughter goats and dogs in what was known as this Lupercal. A lot of a lot of Latin mm-hmm. like, words here. The Lupercal was the cave of the Roman legend uh, that hell is supposed to be where the location of the city's founders were, um, Romulus and Remus. They were cursed by a wolf, and that that's a whole other episode we could do, mm-hmm. the Romulus and Remus. Remus. What's that from? Remus oh, Lupin, Harry Potter. He changes he was, into a werewolf. You're welcome. It's full circle. We we every, I think every episode, haven't we decided that every episode we either have a Harry Potter reference mm-hmm. or an office reference? Mm-hmm. So the... So this was all started originally as like an animal sacrifice thing. And you're like, where are we going? What does this have to do with Valentine's Day? But then it, things just took a little turn. Yeah, we, we go from slaughtering goats and dogs as this purification sacrifice to something a little bit darker. Mm-hmm. I'm also, these the, the Luperci or Luperci, I'm, I'm picturing um, in Twilight. You know, like mm-hmm. that, that's what I'm picturing, those hooded robed people i don't know yeah oh the um the voltori that's what i'm that's what i'm picturing in my mind yeah so the luperci would then cut the goat's skin into strips and run along the palatine hill in rome striking women with the goat skin Mm -hmm. these young women would line up in the streets waiting to be hit with these goat skins because Mm -hmm. they believed it would make them fertile yeah. Not sure about the science behind that one. Mm-hmm. Art from that time period, like this is proven because art from that time period would depict these women, like there's paintings and stuff of this, of them being stripped naked for these beatings, like lining the streets. You love to get smacked by goats. Also, who's like hanging that up in their house? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Me, if you could find me one. I'm sure somebody out mm-hmm. there has one hanging up in there like, oh, that's what that is. Yeah. According to a Time article, the most plausible theory for this whipping was that it served as this initiation as a like ritualized quote unquote sexual play that marked a boy's transition into adulthood. So a boy's transition into adulthood means they get to smack women with animal Right, and women wanted to be things. wanted to be smacked cuz it apparently made them fertile. Mm. It's problematic mm-hmm. for sure. So go back to that picture. These are naked priests, which that's the other thing is I don't understand. It's like this rich, this coming of age thing from young men, but it's performed by these, mostly by these priests, mm-hmm. beating women with strips of dead animals, which modern scholars feel that there's some evidence that even ancient Romans thought this was weird. Obviously, we think this is weird, mm-hmm. but sometimes a culture doesn't think it's weird. Mm-hmm. But there were some people back then that yeah. were like, hey, rightfully so rightfully so uh one rumored aspect of this festival is that there was a matchmaking part involved which is often cited as further evidence that 
Lupercalia is linked to Valentine's Day. There it is. There she is. I wasn't sure how the other parts went in with it. It's a stretch, but... However, historians have had trouble finding official records of men being paired with women for this ritual, because supposedly there were only about a dozen of these priests at the at the ritual, and women would therefore far outweigh the men. So mm-hmm. matchmaking math doesn't really add up. Unless they were doing like a sister wife I was situation. about to say, unless that was the intention. Ten women per one man. I, honestly. Might as well. It, it might That might have been the motivation mm-hmm. behind it. I can't think about that too hard. The earliest historical record of the Lupercalia was from the 3rd century BCE, and the very last record was from the end of the 5th century CE. So that was around the same time that Pope Galasius I created a day for St. Valentine. Mm -hmm. So here here we're getting the name. So who is St. Valentine? The Catholic Church recognizes at least three different saints who were named Valentine or Valentinus, all of whom were martyred. So you, you kind of have like a three-for-one deal here. And and I think this has to do with back then, they would take these pagan holidays and make them Christian, Christian To try to them. like win them back. Yeah, and so he, I don't think Pope Gelasius liked Lupercalia because it was a pagan holiday. So he was like, we're going we're gonna to, I mean, it's going to be around saint. anyway. We might as well throw a saint on it and right. make it. So that's where Claim I think it for our from. own. Mm-hmm. So one of one of the Valentines, remember we said there were three, one of the Valentines was a priest who served during the third century in Rome. And around this time, Emperor Claudius II declared that single men made better soldiers than married men with families, I guess, because the married men didn't want to fight hard and they did because mm-hmm. they didn't want to die. I don't, I don't know yeah. if they wanted to go back to their families. So for this reason, uh, Emperor Claudius II outlawed young men to be married. Well... I guess if you have the power to do that. I guess you're going to be an old married man then. Valentine believed that this decree was not just, and he would then secretly marry um, young lovers. So, you know, he was breaking the law. Mm -hmm. This eventually earned himself the death sentence once he was found out, and that's that's how he was martyred. So martyred for helping young love. Mm -hmm. It's kind of sad story. Gets sadder though. Valentine was arrested and dragged before the prefect of Rome, who condemned him to be beaten to death with clubs and then have his head cut off. And this supposedly happened on February 14th. There you have it. On or around the year 270, which that blows my mind, but yeah. February 14th. There it is. Other stories suggest that Valentine may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape the harsh Roman prisons where they were often beaten and tortured. That's uh, nice. Probably more like, I don't know, maybe a more likely story. Mm-hmm. And then another legend surrounding this Valentine figure is that while in prison himself, he fell in love with one of the guard's daughters. And before his death, like March, before he was walked out, he supposedly wrote the girl a note and signed it from your Valentine, which... We still like sign notes from Valentine's today. I see. That's the more like romantic yeah. version. There's a lot of lore here. Probably not yeah. as likely. Fast forward a little bit. By the Middle Ages, St. Valentine became one of the most adored saints in England and in France. It was a common belief that February 14th was the beginning of a bird's mating season. So they looked at nature. The English poet, this I love this, the English poet Geoffrey Chaucer was the first to record St. Valentine's Day as a day of romantic celebration. Um, in 1375, he wrote a poem called Parliament of Fowls, and he wrote, 
For this was sent on St. Valentine's Day, when every fowl cometh there to choose his mate. Talking about the birds. Talking about the birds, the birds and the bees. Mm-hmm. Um, then after this poem, like, eventually circulated around a lot, European nobility began sending significant others love notes during mating season. So Why just the bird mating season? Why not? Every other animal? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Birds and the bees, I guess. Bird, uh, do bees to, mate in February? Probably. We'll never know. Just spring, you could probably Google. Springtime, mm-hmm. I guess. The oldest known Valentine, still in existence today, was also from a poem, uh, a French poem written in 1415 by Charles, Duke of Orleans, to his wife while he was imprisoned in London, in the Tower of London. All these love notes coming out of prison. This one's very sad. <laughs> you want to read this one for us? It is sure. sad. Oh, I just love this first line. My very gentle Valentine, since for me you were born too soon and I for you was born too late. God forgives him who has estranged me from you for the whole year. I am already sick of love. My very gentle Valentine. Which is sad. Yeah, and then he probably got his head chopped Yeah, off he, and... they probably didn't have a good mm-hmm. a good ending. But you can um, still see this. Man, this is part of, like this greeting. You can still see it. It's in the British Library in London, England, as part of their like fancy manuscript collection. Mm-hmm. So, several years later, it is believed that King Henry V hired a writer named John Lydgate to compose a Valentine note to Catherine of Valois. Mm. You know, you got money when you can hire someone. I mean, yeah, like a, a Hallmark. famous poet. Yeah, this is the first like Hallmark. I just call Hallmark up and I'm like, yeah, write the best write this greeting card me. you've ever yep. done. Uh, so speaking of Hallmark, um, eventually uh, by 1900, printed cards began to replace these handwritten love letters due to improvements in printing technology. So thanks, Industrial Revolution. I also read where, so they became more accessible. So people would um, buy them and they would write mean things <gasps> and send them to their enemies because they were so accessible. They were, they were like, might as well. Time in my day to spread hate. <laughs> So they Love would note for send you, them out. Hate note for you. Yeah, and around that same time in England, they became unpopular because of that. I uh, love that. But while it became unpopular in England, it traveled across the pond in America. And you know, we, I mean, us Americans, we like eat that cup because <laughs> candy and food. <laughs> no, why not? I love that. Bring it back. Mm-hmm. So speaking again of Americans, um, Americans probably began exchanging handmade valentines in the early 1700s. Then in the 1840s, a woman by the name of Esther A. Howland began selling the first mass-produced valentines in America, and she became known as the Mother of Valentine. And she made these like elaborate, cute creations with like lace and ribbons and colorful pictures and stuff. You go, Esther. You go, Esther. Uh, today, uh, the according to the Greeting Card Association, an estimated 145 million Valentine's Day cards are sent out each year. That's a lot. Which makes Valentine's Day the second largest card sending holiday, followed or uh, following closely to Christmas. I would not think Christmas was the I first because, like, Christmas is gifts and stuff. I would think valen- the card day would be like Mother's Day or Father's Day. Yeah, I guess I there. All everybody who likes send pictures of their families. Yeah, that's true. It's not just like you're not just like going to Hallmark mm-hmm. and getting cards. You're doing the, the the family photos. So maybe you and your loved one this holiday looking to spice things up. You could go get you a goat and skin it. <laughs> Don't do just, that. No, and just, then whoosh, whack her with it. Whoosh. And uh, then, or mm-hmm. just go to Hallmark and get you a card oh. and get her some of our snack. Just right. hold on. Perfect yes. segue. 
you're going to want to get her what break. our snack break is. Forget today. the candy, forget the flowers, forget the chocolate. Just you're going to want to get her what we had for snack break. Yes, you will. And we'll see you in a sec. she's rolling are there two yeah there's two this is the most ultimate snack break we've ever had for many reasons many reasons first of all we have two different snacks we do a double snack break for weeks now we've been in search of the little debbie ice creams i don't know if y'all have seen them we were only able to find three of them yeah and didn't you say the first time you looked at walmart they were all sold out I just didn't see any, so it could be. So today we have the uh, Swiss Rolls ice cream, the Oatmeal Cream Pie ice cream, obviously. We're really excited about that one. And the Cosmic Brownie ice cream. Again, Little Debbie, probably not going to sponsor us because we said how poisonous their snacks are, but they know their snacks aren't good for you. We don't know about their ice cream, though. Could be. The the verdict's still out on the ice cream. Okay, which one are you trying first? Uh, we are gonna try the Swiss rolls ice cream. Do you like Swiss rolls in general? Um, I, I think do. so. I'm predicting this one's just gonna taste like some like some good. Oh, oh put it straight in the microphone. <laughs> like Don't some, let that melt and drip. Yep. Oh, I got it. We got it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll get a napkin in okay. a second. <laughs> Sorry, I got too excited. I'm predicting this one's gonna taste like like real good chocolatey chocolate. Okay. Okay. You heard it here first. Chocolatey chocolate. One, two, three. Mm-hmm. That's weird. That tastes like a... That's a Swiss roll. Exactly like a Swiss roll. What? Mm-hmm. I'm going to give that a 10 out of 10. What? That... Okay. I'm sure... We're going to save oatmeal cream pie for last. Okay. Obviously... Well, I'm not going to be able to handle that. Here we go. Next, we're trying Cosmic Brownie, which is one of my all-time favorite little Debbies. Does it have little pieces of... Uh, oh, it does. I know. It has little pieces of um, the little... What, what do you call that on top? They're not sprinkles. Rainbow candies. Rainbow candies. Okay. Um, wow. So, you're gonna get, so we're going to get a little ch- a little crunch with it. Ready? Uh-huh. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, click. I think because it, it tastes similar to the other one. But, yeah. But, but the, the difference is you've got the little pieces of candy in mm-hmm. it. But the other one, I know it's chocolate, but it tastes like Swiss roll chocolate. Also, just looking at these side by side, the, it looks like a Swiss roll. Like, I don't, it yeah. looks fluffy. I know, right? Okay. Delicious. Okay, this also one delicious. I'm not even going to be able to contain because we all know my love for oatmeal oh. cream pies. I don't even know what to begin. Like, what I, I have no predictions for this. It, good. Oh, my God. I get my scoop and then Hannah gets her scoop and then we cheers. And it, th- this has little pieces of, this has little pieces of the cake oh, in I it. Know. <sighs> okay. okay. I don't think I'm ready for this. All right, here we go. Yep. Creamy. <laughs> That's so weird. Creamy, delicious. It look, get, you need this big old chunk right now. I got one. Did you? Mm-hmm. You can get you another one. Thank you. Uh, oh, did you get it? I don't know, but I'm going to... Oh. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She came to play. 10 out of 10 recommend that. The last thing we got, completely unrelated. I think they've had these for a while. I've never seen them. But this is not completely unrelated. Isn't this a Little Debbie? Yeah. Another Little Debbie is the peanut butter oatmeal cream pies, which I have never I've, I did not seen. know that existed. So here. ASMR. 
We also got these little Debbie sponsor us. We're your biggest fan. I'll eat it. I don't care what you put in it. It smells amazing. Oh, wow. Peanut butter smell. Okay. Ready? Go. Let go. Oh, and I just know the, the, mm. peanut, the filling's peanut butter, too. I know. It's that peanut that butter tastes like the, the best peanut butter cookie I've ever tasted. Yeah. I mean, it. it's like mm. your grandmother's peanut butter cookie Mm-mm. with peanut, peanut butter, butter cream. cream filling in between. Okay. Well, this, this might be my new favorite. This might be the <gasps> best snack break we've ever had. Mm-hmm. It is. Little Debbie, again, sponsor us. And, yeah, that's all I got to I mean, say. We, we're speechless. Um, we, we're speechless. 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 We can't even do the second half of the podcast because we're so speechless. Well, I'll just be sitting here. That's fine. This is the end of the show, guys. Thanks yeah, for tuning good. in. And goodbye. Just kidding. It's not. Please uh-huh. stick around. We do have. We do have more, but it's so good. Awesome. Mm. Bye. hope you enjoyed that snack break let me tell you about what i did this week tell me um besides besides hunt for little debbie ice cream right um i tried to eat healthy this week we (laughs) ate healthy um my my rule was you can only have one sweet thing a day and so i decided that time would be dinner time um did i feel better not really uh was i happy no also not really. no i wasn't <laughs> so i guess we'll do it again this week because i don't want to have um diabetes okay. in the future well, but we just we just but i think i just gave that. myself diabetes we just had during that snack break so three tubs of ice cream and mm-hmm. a box of peanut butter milk and pasta oh those are good so if good. you haven't gotten them also we forgot to mention the other we're still on the oh, hunt yeah. for the honey bun the zebra, zebra cake, cake and the strawberry Strawberry. i didn't i never ate the strawberry short creek growing up but no but i imagine that ice cream is really good i bet it's like a really good strawberry ice cream Mm -hmm. and then i don't really know what i I picture zebra cake to be but then the nutty buddy didn't we say oh nutty but the nutter butter is that one i think we made that up but that would be good they need to look into that if somebody needs to get on that (laughs) chocolate peanut butter crunchy Mm -hmm. i like how this isn't even the snack break but it's not extended version of a snack break just too excited uh, true crime. What do you think about the true crime? How are we going to relate it to Valentine's Day? There, well, based on first part, there's lots of different ways you can go with this. Right. Well, it, um, yeah, it doesn't involve goats. <laughs> no. Or slapping women with goat skin. No. Paraphernalia. It's just a murder that happened on and around Valentine's Day. Also good. Mm-hmm. Between two. And, and sad. Mm-hmm. Between, I mean, they're all sad, but especially on Valentine's Day. Between two lovers, as it were. So today we're talking about the murder of Tara Lynn Grant. So it's February 14th, 2007. I'll take you back in a little time travel machine. They didn't have Little Debbie ice cream back then. They did not. We've come a long way. They were missing out. Tara Lynn Grant had failed to return home from work. And news of the missing wife and mother of two quickly made headlines Stephen Grant, Tara's husband, was on the local news almost daily, making very tearful, sometimes angry pleas for his wife to return home. But after a little digging, the police quickly find out that there was a five-day discrepancy of when Tara actually went missing 
and when he reported her disappearance to the police. So, duh, duh, duh. Yeah. So, who was Tara Lynn Grant and what happened to her? Well, Tara was born in Michigan in June of 1972, and she grew up on a farm. Her sister, Alicia, had this to say about the farm. She said, this is just life goals. Uh, we had old McDonald's farm to a T. We had everything. Horses, you know, sheep, cows, pigs, goats, guinea, pigs, rabbit. That actually says guinea hens, and I'm not real sure what maybe that she, is. Maybe she had guinea pigs and hens. Or she had something or called a guinea hen, and I'm not even sure what that is. Rabbits, chicken, turkeys, geese, you name it, we had it. That's the dream. Yeah, I would like that. But after college, she settled down and found a new home in the more suburban Detroit, Michigan. It was while she was there that she met a man by the name of Stephen Grant. Stephen had actually recently dropped out of school, and it is said that the two were total opposites. We'll post pictures on the Instagram as always, but Tara was very beautiful, ambitious, and super smart. And Stephen, I just, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. But well, nobody really had anything nice to say about Stephen. Which is a red flag. Yeah. he. I can say this because, well, no, I don't want to give it away, but he's just not the most handsome man and he doesn't really have anything going for him but for whatever reason tara said okay she said i can get my own coin i can do my own thing i don't need a man to do that so we'll go with you for some time steven worked at his father's machine shop while tara began a very lucrative career at washington group international which is a construction and engineering firm all right go tara go tara get your coin girl The two eventually had two children, one boy and one girl, and Stephen would later say that the boy was a surprise. I read that, hold on, I'm so out of breath. That snack break. Oh, dang, ice cream is really sitting on my lungs. (laughs) Um, Supposedly, Tara believed that she had taken a birth control shot when she had actually just received the flu shot. Uh, You can't see my face right now, but I look very confused. (laughs) Stephen said, so she got pregnant because she obviously didn't get her. Isn't it like Depavera or something like that? I don't know, but who who messed that up? Did the the doctor mess that up? Did they lie to you? Was it genuinely an accident? Did Stephen? Because that's a big manipulative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Stephen said, would later say that they weren't really ready or prepared for a second child at that point. But once he was born, they they fell in love with him, obviously, and things were good. And the Grants from the outside looking in were a very happily, hap, happily family, happy family. They went on vacations, including trips to northern Michigan, and they would also grill out in the summer and take their kids out to eat for their birthdays. I read that they went to Chuck E. Cheese. I love Chuck E. Cheese. It's you, scary. You, you think it's scary? I was a little scared. I don't like their pizza. I just there's a couple of games there that I enjoy. Yeah, I just remember they had those like big like animatron mm-hmm. animatronics yes the mouse that would do a little show and dance mm-hmm. and that was scary you mean great yeah iconic yes. is what she meant iconic to say is accurate mm-hmm. and steven eventually assumed the position of stay-at-home mom during the day and tara was the breadwinner which we love and this would later earn him the name in the media as mr mom so they're gonna they're gonna at first like him because mm-hmm. of that As Tara's career grew, she was frequently gone during the week for business trips, but was usually home on the weekends, and it is said that before she would leave each week, she would leave her children little notes, letting them know how much she loved them, but she was gone a pretty good bit. But you got to do what you got to do if you're the only, if you're the one making the money. You've only got one salary. 
Mm-hmm. The family eventually hired what is known as an au pair. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, an au, pa- n- an au pair. Yeah, it's like a, a French ne- nanny. I know. I have never in my life heard of this. Yeah. Where, where have I been? I don't know. I feel like I've like read about it in stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. So if those are of you who are stupid like me, an au pair is um, a hired helper from a foreign country who works and lives with the host family. And they typically share the family's responsibilities, including childcare. And the au pair that they hired was a 19-year-old German woman by the name of Verena. And she was living in the household when Tara disappeared. So there you go. You'll learn some new, including myself. Stephen eventually grew resentful of Tara's success, and they would find themselves in frequent arguments. Stephen later said, quote, I was a better mom than Tara was. There's no other way to put it. I was the mom of the house. She was gone all the time. If the kids needed someone to take them swimming or school or soccer practice, I took them. Way to, like, okay. do your job. Steven, yeah. And most moms are, like, t- the typical, like, stay-at-home mom is that's gen- generally on the woman, and you don't see them, like, complaining about any of that. Right. Just because you're the Just man. Just because the roles were reversed. Yeah. Steven eventually began to look for attention elsewhere, and mm-hmm. he began emailing his ex-girlfriend, telling her that he wanted to see her naked, and he wanted her to give him a sponge bath. Ew. I don't know why you would try and say that to be sexy. That, I was just about sponge baths that's, that's are like what the least you give thing. old people when they can't get up. Right. Mm-hmm. Stephen would later defend these emails saying, quote, I did say I wanted to see you naked because I'm a guy. Men always want to see women naked. I hate that so freaking much. That's not a justification. No. And then also they, they try and use that as excuses like they can't control themselves because they're men and they have this just go sit down in a trash can nobody cares tara's last business trip was to puerto rico on the night of friday february 9th 2007 tara returned home from puerto rico and the couple immediately got into an argument about tara's constant traveling and things escalated even further when Tara said that she was going to return to Puerto Rico on Sunday rather than the usual Monday. So she's like flying back and forth and coming back on the weekend uh-huh. to spend time with her family. Right. Right. And he's going to be mm-hmm. mad. Hey, I know you're earning money for us and coming back on the weekends. But yeah. Steven's a jerk, Hannah. Yeah. I didn't like him from the start. <laughs> After this argument, Steven said that he heard Tara talking to someone on the cell phone she then walked outside with her luggage to a black bar service sedan. What is a black bar? Did I get that? Did, is that a typo? I don't know, but I imagine this is 2007, so I don't think we have like Uber or Lyft right. or anything like that. So this is probably it's like, like a, a car company. Yeah, it's probably like maybe like the, it's got that bar at the top that has like the, the light up thing, like a taxi. Oh. Okay. Maybe. That makes sense. Stephen reported that this entire exchange from when Tara got home to when she left was about 20 minutes. So for the next five days, Stephen said that Tara never called to check in on him or the children. He called his mother-in-law, sister-in-law, and Tara's co-workers during that time, asking if anyone had seen her. And he also left frantic, sometimes angry messages on their voicemails. And they have these voicemails from February 10th and February 11th that he was calling all of these people. Then on February 12th, Stephen called Lou Truendel, who was Tara's supervisor, and Lou was a father, fatherly figure and was worried about Tara and her absence. And he even, uh, well, obviously he recommended that Stephen go to the police, but then he even offered to go to the police station with him, and Stephen declined that. But 
It wasn't until Valentine's Day, there we go, 2007, when Stephen finally met with police to file a missing persons report. And the police agreed to meet Stephen at the Grant home, and one of the officers stated, quote, Mr. Grant answered the door, and I could tell he was afraid we were there. Whereas he's our complainant, we're here to serve him and help him, but he's afraid of us. So they knew, like, as soon as they saw him. They yeah. knew something was up. Like, oh, those videos of, um, what was his, Chris Watts? I, yeah, I was just thinking that. It makes me want to, like, throw up watching him, how nervous he was. And again, hi- hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe we're looking back on those things and going, oh, well, now that we, because we already know the outcome, yeah. we could, we see more stuff. But yeah. this Steven guy just doesn't sound like, there's, there's should have been a lot of red flags. Mm-hmm. When they asked him why he waited five days to report her missing, Stephen said that he and Tara had fights beforehand and she would leave and be gone for several days. So that was like not an uncommon thing for them. I was about to say, and also if she travels a lot, Mm -hmm. I could could see them going for like longer periods of time without Mm -hmm. seeing each other or talking to each other. If she she left for Puerto Rico and they were upset, they're Mm -hmm. probably not going to call and check in. Right. Next, the detectives asked Stephen if he would come down to the police station the next day for a lie detector test, and Stephen initially agreed, but after speaking with his lawyer, he refused to speak to them anymore. So things weren't adding up for the police. For starters, there was no activity on Tara's cell phone for the past five days, and the last time she used her credit card was to pay for airport parking when she returned home from Puerto Rico on February 9th. So clearly she didn't go anywhere. Right. The missing person case quickly evolved into an endangered missing person, and 12 detectives were assigned to the case. There was a search party conducted at a nearby 4,500-acre park where the family frequented for picnics, bike rides, but nothing was found. And just a side note, I read this and it just pissed me off. Stephen's mom, Sue, came down a few days to watch the children, but then left to go on a previously planned trip to Hawaii. Oh. Your (laughs) daughter-in-law is missing. There is a huge search for her and you're going on a trip to Hawaii. Which I feel like that also like speaks into her son's guilt. Like Mm -hmm. where she... I don't know. That's that's sketchy on that whole side of the family. I think that makes her look sketchy just like a crappy human so right. it's not like unbelievable that steven is also a crappy human right <laughs> there was a website created at the time to www.terralingrant.com where family members including steven himself were making public pleas for help and then steven and you need to look these videos up on youtube he went on a media craze making hysterical pleas for help which is so crazy when you find out what happens and as these appearances continued, Stephen began to turn against the police. And he, his thing was he was saying they were focusing too much attention on him rather than looking for Tara. He began to bad-mouthing Tara as well on these television interviews at one point saying, A couple of years ago, Tara and I did have a problem in our marriage with, the, with I don't want to call it infidelity, but, but pretty close to infidelity. And the reporter was like, what's pretty close to infidelity? I don't understand what that means. And Grant said, it was going there. I get that she has to travel for business, but too much is too much. And that was too much. What? I'm going to start saying that. Too much is too much. And and that was too much. Steven is too much. This is when Steven's ex-girlfriend, you remember we were talking about her and her sponge sponge bath earlier. She was like, oh, hold on, hold up," And she was going to spill the tea. So she released some of the emails that Steven had been sending her. One of them said, quote, I am still in need of some excitement in my day. 
wink, wink. I just think of marriage vows like speed limits. Sometimes you have to break them. Ew. Yeah. That's what, that's the. Also, that's a bad metaphor. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-mm. Yeah. You have to break speed limits in the case of emergencies. Right. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is not an emergency, mm-hmm. Stephen. Right. So February turns into March, and the police were finally able to get a break in the case because there was a woman by the name of Sheila Werner who was walking in a park that was close to the Grant home when she spotted a one-gallon Ziploc bag. And the bag was bright red with what appeared to be blood, which stuck out like a sore thumb because it was winter and there was snow on the ground. So the bag contained blood and metal shavings. And remember, Stephen worked at the machine shop where his uh, his dad owned. And so somehow they were able to link these metal shavings back to that particular machine shop. And this was enough to get a search warrant for the Grant house. So the police began their search on the Grant residence on March 2nd, and Stephen stood in the kitchen while the police fanned out moving from room to room. I'm surprised that they let him be there. I don't know. I don't know yeah. all the legality of that, but like he's that just going to sit there and watch. Yeah, I, w- I would think normally they would clear the entire home. Right. But Stephen's not going to be there for long. You'll see. Oh, good. The search warrant covered, quote, latent fingerprints, blood samples, hair samples, animal hair, stained clothing, fibers, and other trace evidence which corroborates the crime. Any and all electronic devices, including but not limited to computers, media storage, answering machines, cell phones, and digital recorders. Stephen was told that he was free to leave, but his vehicles had been impounded. So instead, he went out to the front porch, despite the freezing temperature. It was about 12 degrees outside, and he went and sat out on the porch for a little bit. While on the porch, he called his mutual friend, I mean Taryn, his mutual friend, Mike Zanlungo, and he asked Mike to come and pick him up. And Mike agreed, and Stephen grabbed the family dog, which was a shepherd retriever mix named Bentley. And I love, I love that you did include that detail. You're welcome. I always will. Um, he headed out with old Mike. And Mike reported that Stephen was acting very sus and paranoid. He, While they were driving, he, Stephen thought that certain cars were following them. And Mike eventually said, what's going on? You're not acting like an innocent person. <laughs> Bold. Go, go for it, Mike. Just go ahead and say what you feel. Eventually, Stephen said that he had something to confess, and he told Mike that the police had taken his computer, and on that computer were emailed communications, communications, flirtatious ones between him and Verena, the couple's all pair. So, hey, that's where my mind went at first when he was like starting to get mm-hmm. like cheating, and he talked to his ex-girlfriend i was like normally it's the the nanny yeah and they and i don't i think we i talk about it more later but they did have a relationship not surprising they didn't go all the way supposedly but they went wasn't she like 19 Mm -hmm. okay mike was honest and basically said like guy my guy this doesn't look good for you but he gave him the benefit of of the doubt and he told him you're not the first man to commit adultery but you didn't kill your wife Mike Mike sounds like the more like level-headed person of this whole story Mm -hmm. where yes he's right adultery does not equal murder but but Stephen's not it's not looking up for him right when the pair arrived back at Mike's house Stephen asked to borrow the car so that he could go see his children at his sister's house and being the good friend that old Mike was, he handed over the keys, and Stephen set out for his sister's house. Okay, well, now Mike doesn't sound so smart. <laughs> he called his sister Kelly on the way, and she told him that she and her husband were at Mass. So Stephen met her at church, and Kelly said that she immediately noted that her little brother was in a panic. 
He talked to his children briefly and then asked for the keys to Kelly's house so that he could drop their dog off there. But before he left, he turned to his sister and said, quote, I'm going to get arrested. Deputy Shalowski told me that if he finds one drop of blood in the house, I'll go to prison. But before she could even really digest what Stephen had just said, he said, I'm going to I'm going for a drive. I'll call you soon. So from there, he drives to his sister Kelly's house with a plan to commit suicide because he knew that there was a I've said this wrong before. You don't you don't say point thirty eight, do you? No. no. <laughs> yeah, point thirty eight caliber, uh, a thirty eight caliber handgun. Uh, she had one at her house, but when he got there, he couldn't find it. And so, needing a new plan, he began to search the medicine cabinet where he found a bottle of Vicodin. And he placed the pills in his pocket and he left. Then Stephen went on a little road trip heading toward Lansing. And he was familiar with the area and even had a good friend that lived there. His name was Tom Munley, and he was a corporate lawyer. So Stephen said that he went to Tom's house to turn himself in, but Tom was at home. So he continued on with his plan for suicide. And basically, he just drove around Lansing drinking whiskey and popping Vicodin. He bought an array of items along the way, including razor blades, a bottle of Tylenol PM, a notepad, calling cards, a temporary used cell phone, a black magic marker, and a plastic gun. Because you see, Stephen had heard of suicide by cop, and he had a plan. Oh. And that plan was to use the black magic marker to get the toy gun. You know how toy guns usually have a red mm-hmm. end on them? Mm-hmm. Colored that black so that the gun looked more real. And then he planned to be pulled over, whip out the gun, and then be shot by the police. I just, that's so, that you're a, such a coward because then you put that on somebody else's right. conscience. Right. Not, he, he doesn't want to do it himself and he doesn't want to sit in prison. So he's going to mm-hmm. try to manipulate the, the world to do it for him. Right. He got back in the car and began driving north. He stopped at an ATM and got out $500. And he also stopped and buy, bought more liquor, which he continued to down. I don't know how you drink eat that many Vicodin and take all that liquor. And he's driving and hasn't gotten pulled over. Right. He's going to get in a drunk driving Mm -hmm. accident instead. He made several calls, one to his sister and one to Verena in Germany. And meanwhile, back at the Grant home, investigators weren't finding much evidence to begin with. There were tiny drops of dried blood in the floor in the family room by the fireplace. And there was also a blood stain in the basement wine cellar. And police gathered up all the electronics and a loaded 9mm Ruger pistol. But there was another crew of extra officers and investigators who were wasting time in the garage to keep warm until it was their turn to take over. And as they began to look around, they noticed large dark stains on the concrete floor that were initially thought to be mud or oil. But then they turned their attention to a large green container labeled kids' clothes. And that that container, you know, when they eventually, the, the initial uh, meeting with Stephen was at the house. Yeah. They hadn't seen that there, and so that caught their eye. And so one of the officers removed the top of the container to find a mass of pl- black plastic bags stacked on top of one another. And he went to poke the bag, and it felt soft, like it gave way. It didn't Not feel like It clothes. felt weird. Yeah. Yeah. 
but something in his gut told him to look further and one by one he began to open up the bags and he came across one bag that was clear and smeared with what looked like blood and he used his flashlight to take a better look and what what he initially mistook as a deer carcass was actually a bag of bloody clothing including a woman's bra. Okay, well, also, why would this guy have a deer, deer carcass car- <laughs> in a box that says kids' clothes in yeah. his basement? Maybe it was their pet deer. Okay. Yeah, he's saving it for later. Mm-hmm. Upon opening another bag, Tara's whereabouts were resolved because officers found her headless torso laying on its back in the container. Now severed at the top of her thighs, her bottom half was still wearing black pinstripe pants. So the police searched the machine shop where Stephen worked, where they found forensic evidence, including hair, blood, and even pieces of Tara's flesh. Ew, he sawed her. He cut her up. Ew. Mm-hmm. At this point, the police are like, well, oh, where's Stephen? Because remember, they he's, told him to go a, stand out on the porch. He's on a drunken rampage. Right. So they sent out an APB to the state police well, surrounding also, jurisdictions. Also that's, uh, that's on y'all for letting him go stand on the porch. <laughs> like, you, you didn't send an officer out there with him? <clears throat> right. Okay. So this was about to turn on to a full-on manhunt. So back to Stephen's little road trip. At 1.30 a.m., Stephen pulled over at a convenience store and called his attorney, David Grime. Stephen told David about his plan to kill himself, and David tried to talk him down, but it was no use, and David would have to call the police and tell them about this conversation. And then Stephen continued to drive until he parked at a Honkers Travel Center around 5.30, where he fell asleep for a little bit but woke up at 8 a.m., When he woke up, he went into the store, and it was there he saw the headlines on the Detroit News, Cops Search Grant Home. And I bet he was like, well, 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 that's not good. At this point, Stephen gets back in his car and drives towards the Wilderness State Park, which is 8,300 acres of undeveloped wooded territory. Once he gets there, he makes another call to Verena, and he told her that he and Tara argued, and she struck him, and in response, he said that he pushed her, and she had fallen and died, and he also apologized for all his lies. Nobody cares. Leave Verena alone. She, she, right right at when this all started happening, she checked out and went back to Germany, so. Well, good for her, but also, she shouldn't have answered her phone. (laughs) Yes. Uh, He also called his sister, and he told her to let the kids know that he loved them, and he told, um... I'm sorry. I had a burp there a little bit. A little burpy. He told her that he was outside the Wilderness State Park and that he was going to kill himself. So she obviously informed the police. And then when Stephen hung up with her, he sat there. And I just imagined he was struggling on the struggle bus trying to write this suicide note because he is high on Vicodin and liquor. Alcohol. And the suicide note to his children read, Lindsay and Ian, I know that you two don't understand yet what has happened to mom and I. When you get a little older, Aunt Kelly can explain better. For now, though, just know that I love you both more than anything in the world because I don't want to put anyone through more suffering I have decided to end my life. And I'm sure once they were old enough to understand everything that happened, they were like, good riddance. Yeah. Stephen then gathered his bottle, cap gun, and a notepad and began his trek into the forest. Keep in mind, it was only 10 degrees outside, and the longer he walked, he began to hallucinate, and he saw his family among the trees pointing their fingers at him and chastising him. Alerted by Stephen's sister, the police arrived at Wilderness Park to begin their search, but given the windy conditions, the dogs that they brought out couldn't even get a scent, and the grounds were so treacherous that they were having to search by snowmobiles, and it was really difficult to find him, so they eventually had to call in the U.S. Coast 
guard to assist with search by air. They got in a helicopter, and uh, about one hour into Stephen being out there, they were able to find him. And when they found him, he was severely hypothermic and clinging to life, and he was brought to an area hospital where he recovered and was eventually able to give a very chilling confession to police. Is that supposed to be like a, a play on words because he was hypothermic and mm-hmm. gave a chilling mm-hmm. confession? He gave a very hypothermic confession, confession to the police. He started with the night of February 9th when Tara got he and Tara got into that argument about her work schedule. He said that Tara slapped him and he slapped her back, knocking her to the floor where she hit her head. She then told him that she was going to take the kids and that he would be homeless, and he said that this enraged him, and he began to strangle her. So he reports strangling her for approximately four minutes before she was lifeless. And at this point, he said that he knew his life was over and he would end up in prison unless he came up with a plan. So while his kids were sleeping in their beds, Stephen tied a belt around Tara's neck, drug her down the steps, and placed her body in the back of the SUV. Verena, at this time, unexpectedly came home that night after he had already put Tara in the SUV. Just side note, uh, Verena and Stephen slept together. She's just just like, now that she knows all this, it's just like there was a body in the basement. The next day, he took Tara's body to his father's machine shop, and he dismembered her body into 14 parts. Uh, Police only ever found 11 parts. This... This is turns into like a dark comedy moment because he then places the parts in a plastic tub and he borrowed his children's sled and he places the tub on the sled and he uses this to carry the body out to Stony Creek Park. So he's out there, he has the sled full of body parts, he's going up a hill. The sled gets away from him and starts going down the hill and once it gets to a stopping place, it busts open and the body parts are everywhere. How did no one see? I mean, I guess it was the middle of the night, yeah. right? Well, I don't but know, also, but just, what what are you doing? You I, literally have body parts I, everywhere now. Yeah, I'd just give up right then. Like, trying to, yeah. i just call the police and be like, it's, it, the gig's up, and imagine, guys. Imagine the people who come to the park the next day, and they're like, what happened here? Mm-hmm. Right. There's just all this bloody snow. Mm-hmm. And this is the park where the lady found the plastic bag with uh, the blood and metal shavings, and when so the... Yeah. He left a piece behind. He left more than one. Oh. Because when the police returned to the spot, several of Tara's body parts were still scattered about everywhere. So oh. he didn't get them all. No. Stephen gathered the body parts and buried them in various locations in the woods, and he told detectives he hoped wildlife would find the body before anyone else did. And he actually came back several times to move the body parts to avoid detection. But when he learned that the police were planning to search the area, he took the torso back to his garage because he feared that police would find it and he later quoted saying i did a very very bad job of hiding anything it's right there in the open (laughs) yes grant grant told detectives that he never expected them to search get a search warrant for his house so so he went back to the park Mm -hmm. and brought back body parts Uh whatever ones he could find right Mm -hmm. and put it in a box labeled kids clothing yes okay he's a genius on Friday, December 21st, 2007, Stephen Grant was found guilty of murder in the second degree. The prosecution sought first-degree murder charges, but after three weeks of testimony, the jury could not come to a unanimous decision concerning premeditation. But this was after a medical examiner pointed out that Tara most likely passed out in the first 15 seconds of strangulation, and then Stephen had another three minutes and 45 seconds to stop strangling her. But continued to do so. So they're trying to argue that it wasn't this like crime of passion that 
he would have been able to like click out of that mm-hmm. passionate moment and realize what I he's guess, doing. yeah. There had been another shocking confession in the courtroom, and that was that the Grant's children had told their aunt Alicia that they weren't asleep the night of the murder and they saw everything and heard their mother's dying moans. That to live with that for Yikes. the rest of your life, and I just wonder when, because they were six and four at the time. Yeah, when, I was about to ask that. How they described that to someone, when they described that. Well, I was also if, wondering, did the police ever, did the police ever ask the kids any questions? I mean, I know, I mean, six yeah. and four, that's tough, but also I feel like they would have, don't they normally try to ask the kids if they heard or something? Yeah, they, they probably did, but I didn't see I was what say, was said. Because even if, even if they couldn't fully articulate what they saw or heard, mm-hmm. I feel like it wouldn't have been mid-March before they right. like said that, something to somebody. Right. Stephen Grant was sentenced to 50 to 80 years in prison for second-degree murder charge with an additional 6 to 10 years for mutilation of a corpse. I I feel like he should get an additional additional for taking it to a park and scattering body parts everywhere Right after he, he put his wife on a sled. And then bringing those body parts back to his basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grant's first opportunity for parole hearing won't come until he's 87 years old. Hopefully he'll be long dead by then. In June of 2008, this is sad, Stephen Grant's father committed suicide and neighbors speculate that he was unable to overcome the shame and destruction of murder caused by his family. Well, and the fact that his shop like i mean was the place was yeah was part of how he his son got rid of the body right i'm sure he never went back to work again oh oh no or like what you do to clean those no machines no you don't you throw those away the grant's two children were adopted by tara's sister and every year they host tara's walk which is a 5k to raise awareness about domestic violence Lindsay, the daughter, is studying pediatric psychology. She looks exact. When I say exactly, she looks exactly like Tara Lynn Grant. It's Aww. crazy. She's really pretty. Um, and Ian is also in college, and he actively advocates against domestic violence. And they both say that they want nothing. They have no desire to speak to Stephen. Well, that their not, life's good. Not surprised there. Good for the sister for yeah. adopting him. I mean, mm-hmm. that's you know, sil- silver lining. Yeah. So good, Stephen's just sitting in prison. Guess what? Your children don't even want to talk to you. Don't want nothing to do with you. Well, and, yeah, Mr. Mom. Yeah. What What was it all for? Yeah. Nothing. Nope. 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 No sponge bath. No, no sponge bath was worth that. Nope. Let me tell you. Not at all. Not even with like a good scrub daddy. Nope. Do you own a scrub daddy? I don't. Me either. Probably never going to own one now. Nope. Not that we connected it to this story. Well, all right. I hope you, uh, we're going to release this before Valentine's Day, so you'll have time to let that marinate in your brain. Yeah. Just, and then that way when you're on your, your Valentine's Day or night date, you can think about, you know, goat whippings mm-hmm. and murderous sponge baths. And then, listen, if you're on your first Valentine's Day with somebody and you want to be impressive... Whip be out like, some Valentine's me, Day facts. Mm-hmm. The origins of Valentine's Day and goats. Yep. And uh, and, and goats and fertility and and purification. Purification instruments. Instruments. Don't know what that means. Do, we'll do a tiny tell. Ew. Tiny tell the origin of purification, purification instruments. instruments. All right. Uh, we'll see you in two Tuesdays. Two Tuesdays. Follow us on Scary Tales. We'll um, post photos. Yeah. If you've tried the, the snack break that we ate today, let us know. Let us know if you tried if you, the other ones and if they're yep. good. If I'm going to say my flavors, favorite was the Swiss cake roll, which is surprising. I thought it was going to be oatmeal cream pie. Yeah, I think so too. All right. Cheers. All right. Cheers. See y'all next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.